Hello and welcome to Exit Velo, episode 9. I am Henry, joined here with AJC and Q, and we have got some baseball to talk about, fellas. We're going to dive right in uh, to Commissioner Manfred's response uh, to the whole Astros situation, the latest on that scandal, uh, addressing kind of the public consensus there. That interview with Carl Ravitch had a lot to dive in. We're going to touch on the Astros uh, and as a whole and their owner, Jim Crane, uh, some events that have happened since we last spoke, gentlemen. And then we're going to dive into an AL Central preview. Guys, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Looking forward to this all day. Always the highlight of my day to be talking baseball with you guys. So looking forward to this episode. I'm good. I'm just getting off a little bit of the flu, feeling a little better, ready to talk about some baseball. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Let's let's jump right in and talk about Manfred's interview. Guys, what are some of my highlights you're taking away from that? Adam, you start. Manfred, for the longest time, I've never been a big fan of Manfred. When he was trying to fix baseball by speeding up by five minutes per game, I just knew this guy wasn't the right fit. And after Selig, who basically oversaw the whole steroid scandal, I did not think the commissioner could be any worse, but Manfred has done the job. So he's just adding to his disgrace by not really commending the Astros. And I understand there actually is a good point here in that Lundhau never sent the memo to his players to stop doing the sign-stealing scandal. But come on, they all knew that what they were doing wrong. If he wanted to, he could have laid on the law even more so of Lundhau, even more so of the players, but he doesn't. And now he's going on to say that Teams shouldn't throw at them trying to protect these Astros players, ever, when, even though he's not even protecting the ever MLB players protected by that were harmed by the sign-stealing scandal. So it's just terrible right now with Manfred. Q, what are your thoughts on the matter? Listen, Manfred's hands are kind of tied here because he's in a sticky scenario. You can't have balls being projected at players' heads. These are investments. I know they did wrong. But it seems like we're having the same conversation about commissioners. Everyone said that Bud Selig was really bad. Everyone's going to say Manfred's bad now. But to be fully honest, you have to speed up the game. I know as a fan, I don't like it because I like baseball as is. But just America's appetite is high-octane, fast-paced sports. And just at this pace and this climate right now, baseball as is does not have the stamina to keep up with football and basketball. And I think he's doing what he has to do. You know, but I literally, his hands are tied and he's in a sticky scenario. What do you think? I agree with both of you guys. I think that that interview was pretty bad and we didn't really get a very good uh, PR look from the league there and from Manfred. I do think that he has an incredibly hard job right now that you really can't do anything right. The big thing that I took away from that interview was Ravitch was really pressing him like, you know, this is a huge deal. Why weren't the players punished? And what Manfred said was, you know, that immunity deal that the players reached was, I guess that was the only way to get the information to where they were able to, you know, at least hold somebody responsible for this. Oh, most definitely. Someone always has to be the scapegoat and take blame. But I'm sure this is a, a culture that, you know, permeated baseball from its earliest days. Someone always wants to get 
the edge. Someone always wants to win more than others, and they might cheat to do it. It happens in a lot of sports, but, you know, it's it's a pretty chronic problem for baseball, and I commend at least his effort to snot it out, but he could have been a lot harsher in my eyes. Adam, you have any more thoughts on uh, – I'm sorry, cut you off there, but Adam, go no, ahead, no, please. No, no, you're good. You're good. So it's weird because – Manfred still Manfred said it just seems like he's still saying all the wrong things. And I understand he's commissioner and it's as easy to talk trash about the commissioner as it is to talk trash about politicians. It's only natural. Everyone does it. No one's gonna like the guy perfectly. So it's it's just only natural. But to say that the World Series ring was just a piece of metal, to say that the players are truly sorry, even though they couldn't even rehearse what their what their lines were well enough and say that they don't feel any guilt they got away with everything. Come on. Yeah, you, you have to at least be a little bit realistic. And he is basically diving into everything what's going wrong with the Astros. Everything was wrong with their approach right now. They didn't admit any fault or error. They had a fake press conference to say they're sorry. And it's just really ridiculous that it almost feels like he's backing the Astros side right now. Obviously, he isn't. Obviously, he doesn't condone their actions. But to a lot of MLB fans right now, that's how it feels like. Now, guys, how do you feel like this interview or, you know, getting this look into Manfred's thought process, how do you think this impacts the Red Sox investigation? I I think the Red Sox investigation will be reflected easily beyond his perspective in this interview because it kind of shows they can't really get much worse than what he laid out and he's going to protect the players that were involved obviously but he's in a very big conundrum right now and I wouldn't want Manfred's job would you? Absolutely not and with Alex Cora already gone is that pressure for there to be you know a more harsh punishment that's including somebody else? Does that change things? Adam, what do you say? Manfred's already talked about how the Red Sox won't be at – well, the penalties for the Red Sox won't be as harsh as they were for the Astros. They weren't as involved, and there's a lot of data already backing up how much sign-stealing the Astros did. The, to the best of my knowledge, the Red Sox did not do any trash-banging. They might have had some electronic watches here and there, but no trash-banging. So it's a little bit tougher to tell, but – the core already gone. The Red Sox are in the right step of, in that regard. Possibly could see a couple higher ups gone as well. But who was the who's the GM before uh, Heim Bloom? Was it Dombrowski or Sherry? Sorry, Sherrington, right? So yes. he's gone too. So a lot of their staff has been already fired. There might not be much more can do besides just handing out suspensions to former Red Sox uh, PR guys. So. It'll be interesting, but I don't think it's going to be as harsh. And with the Astros already being so hated, they might the Red Sox might not get might not shoulder to blame as much. Yeah, I think you're spot on with that. I, I certainly couldn't see any of the Red Sox players being suspended from this. Now, one more piece of this that I want to touch on uh, in the interview, Manfred was asked about uh, retaliation to players being thrown at. It was asked in relation to the Astros, but he answered saying that uh, the league was actually about to put out a new referendum on um, beating players later this week. Anyways, that seems like awfully convenient timing. What are your all's takeaways from that exchange? Well, players are going to get thrown at. I mean, that might be the most justifying, excitable, and poetic justice piece for us baseball fans. But truthfully, we don't want to see anybody hurt. But as a fan, it kind of feels like you got things stolen from you. 
and I'm a Mets fan. I'm not even a Yankees fan, a Dodgers fan. But if I was one of those <laughs> teams' fans, I would feel like I was literally cheated. And I don't want to see anyone plunked, but maybe, you know, it dusts off, it throws behind someone's back, just to let them know that, you know, they might have got off scot-free from the long arm of the law, but I guess the street justice serves some, some people in other ways, you know? Obviously, no one deserves to get hit or get hurt, but as a fan and just as a Yankee fan especially, it almost, you almost want to see some action, some tension, because there's all of this buildup, and everyone's starting to speak out about more. Labor Torres had a comment earlier today that he said in private, but some reporters caught wind of it, and he said, look, I always look at all the remote controller when I'm playing Lee Severino at video games, and I don't tell him because every time I win, I keep doing it because it's successful. This is what the Astros do. So... Everyone's really peeved off by this, and they're just trying to hold back so they're not in the in the in poor lighting. But at this point, everyone is really mad at the Astros, so no matter what the players say, they can kind of say it at this point, and everyone's really annoyed. So there will be some players thrown at, but and Manfred's in a tough position here too because he doesn't want anyone getting thrown at. He knows that there probably will be some Astros getting thrown at. And with kind of setting the Islanders penalties, he can at least stop it a little bit. So he's in a tough position, but a lot of fans kind of do want to see that retaliation, that action. So it will be interesting to see how much, uh, how much, how many times they'll be thrown at. They actually made an over/under projection today of eighty-three point five times the Astros will be hit this season. Damn, eighty-three and a half. So you're obviously on the underside of it, but. Do you think that's a feasible number, or is it going to be way less or a little over? Ah, I, I think it's going to be, like, way less but more polarized moments, you know? Like, I could see a fight or two definitely breaking out, but then I see the clamp coming down after that. I can't see them being, like, a punching bag, you know? <laughs> if players are going to be getting suspended for throwing at the Astros, I, I can't see it getting close to that number. And that creates a whole nother problem because then you have players being suspended for retaliating to the Astros cheating for which no one was suspended. So that, that's a whole nother can of worms. But while we're talking about players being mad at the Astros, you guys following along with the Cody Bellinger, Carlos Correa beef? Oh, yeah. That's, that's the juiciest beef around now. No? <laughs> you really can't hate on Cody Bellinger. He's the MVP. He's, he's more well-liked and every single player of the Astros right now combined. And then Correa goes off on him. And Cody Bellinger didn't even say that controversial stuff. He's just said, look, the Astros cheated in 2017. Judge should have won the MVP. It's terrible what they did. That's essentially what he said. And Correa went off on the former MVP. And then now Trout's had some response too, saying, hey, if I knew what's coming, this would be a lot more fun. So is he now going to take a shot at Trout, the best player of the game who's very quiet. So hey, to be fair, the way Trout bats, he pretty much seems like he knows what's coming every time. <laughs> yeah, he does. You bat like seven hundred, probably. <laughs> but uh, I, the biggest thing I took away was the defense of Altuve. He was very, very adamant, and he even gave reasoning into why he didn't take his jersey off. Because I guess that seems to be the biggest uh, point to everyone's case against uh, Altuve and his integrity, because he didn't want to take his jersey off. But apparently his wife has him on whip, 
and doesn't like to be, uh, you know, bare-chested in front of the fans. And uh, he had a bad tattoo, so... <laughs> that, old story, that, that old story still seems weird to me. And from what we heard from Manfred in his interview, there's been no evidence, no player testimony suggesting that there is any credibility to the wires, to the buzzers, uh, rather, that the Astros were allegedly uh, wearing in 2019. So that, that makes it all the more weird, I guess, that, that what was Jose Altuve doing, running into the dugout, holding his jersey? I guess, you know... You can buy the tattoo thing. That that seems a little weird to me. Maybe this whole situation has me being a little more paranoid than I otherwise would be. Adam, what, what do you say about the uh, about the Bellinger? And what what about Carlos Correa? You know his kind of breakdown, his video. Did you, did you guys see what he said? He's talking about all the different situations in the World Series when the Astros scored and the signs were too hard to steal. Do you guys see that? I haven't heard too much about that, but I just don't want the points to get lost about the tattoo because the tattoo was pretty wild to begin with. Just to say, like, he randomly was hiding a tattoo and the whole report about his wife. And he does have a tattoo on there. He actually casually flipped off a towel and just showed the reporters that he had this tattoo. But his backing for it says, I got the tattoo over two sessions in California. First of all, just having a name on your chest doesn't mean doesn't take two sessions at all. Secondly, the Astros didn't even go to San Francisco. They went to Oakland and Los Angeles, which is both very far from San Francisco. So when would he have done that during the regular season? So that kind of loses all credibility for the tattoo. But since Manfred came to the conclusion that there was no buzzer referendum, then perhaps that the whole buzzer situation should be thrown out the window at this point. A little California geography note. Oakland is pretty close to San Francisco. I had to Google it. I wasn't sure. Uh, just for the record, in Jose Altuve's defense. <laughs> no, I was there this summer. It is. It is. It's close. No, but I get what Adam's saying. I'm not going to buy into it too much, but it kind of sounds like someone that when you catch lying, they have a sort of a pre-prepared answer for everything you're going to shoot at them. It kind of just sounded too ready, you know? And... I Henry, am sorry think? to move us along, guys. We have got a lot to talk about. That was an abrupt, abrupt ending to Altuve. Do you guys any more to touch on as in terms of uh, Jim Crane and what he said since we last spoke? Crane just seemed a bit controversial because he didn't. He said the Astros were kind of they were they were at fault, but they weren't at fault. There's there's a point where he contradicted himself, and he said. Or, like, this definitely helped us win the World Series, and it didn't. So that was kind of strange. It seemed like they just very – they rehearsed it very poorly. So that was that's my only thoughts about Crane, but it just doesn't look good for the Astros, and they somehow made themselves look even more worse after that whole interview process. Yeah, it's not going away. This is going to be a major talking point this season. Get used to it. We are, we're going to have to touch on the Astros. Probably every uh, episode here on out, but we'll see. Maybe these Astro segments get shorter and shorter. But for now, we are moving ahead, and we are going to do our AL Central preview. It was a pretty big offseason for the division, a lot of uh, moving in and out aside from the two bottom feeders. But we'll get into that right off the bat. Fellas, I want to hear who are you projecting to win the AL Central? Well, 
I'm going to have to go with the Indians. I think pitching still wins ball games. I know the sexy pick is the Twins or maybe even the White Sox, but I still think their rotation pound for pound can go head to head in 162 games with the rest of the pack. What do you think, Adam? The Twins won, I believe, over 100 games last year, if not exactly at 100. They improved their team in more this offseason. Indians got rid of some pieces, too. Mike Clevenger's injured as well. They might have a healthier Lindor and Ramirez, but nonetheless, I don't think it's enough to overtake the Twins at this point. And I will probably side with Adam on this one. I think I'm leaning Twins. I still like the Indians. I agree with you, Q. I believe they have the best pitching. But now that we've got uh, got our short line there on our projected winners, let's dive deeper into this thing. And where better to start than the dreadful bottom? We have our Detroit Tigers. Guys, can you say? Can we say one nice thing about the Tigers to start? That's rough. Uh, they might win more ball games than last year. <laughs> They got a good prospect coming, too. Casey Miz. Adam. Adam, you owe me one thing positive. Say something nice about the Tigers. You know what, Henry? I'm going to give you two players' names that are positives. Nico Goodrim and Jacoby Jones. Both of them could be 15-15 players, maybe in 20-20 potential. And very, very, uh, very underrated. So they're both going to be at the top of the lineup. And they could kind of cause some fun and havoc on the base pads in this very dreadful Tigers lineup. All right, guys, now that we've got it off to a positive note, we are now free to rip on the Tigers and recognize uh, why we are projecting them to finish last. Where better to start than Miguel Cabrera, the most overpaid man in baseball? And it really is sad to see a guy that we grew up watching be so great, the skills evaporating seemingly overnight, and then... He is in the three-hole for a pretty abysmal lineup. There are a couple of bright spots, as Adam mentioned, but you just you look through what Detroit is putting out there. It is it is not a very good lineup. You could say CJ Crone, maybe. Is there you guys, I'll give you an opportunity. I want to pass the mic and let you rip on the Tigers real quick. Okay, I got some ripping. Miguel Cabrera had his healthiest season since 2016. Last year, playing 136 games. How many home runs did he hit, guys? I don't know, like 13? 12. Yeah, there 12 we go. home runs. That is gross for Miguel Cabrera. If he's doing that and your team is bad, I'm sorry. I'm a, I'm a Mets fan. That's pretty bad in itself, but it could be worse, guys. <laughs> yeah, the Tigers, when they have Jonathan Scope and C.J. Crone as their two most powerful hitters who just can't play defense for their lives, that's pretty abysmal. And then you have Maven and Roadmine starting – those guys are men in the backup role. They're not meant to start. Yeah, I, as a Yankee fan, I've seen both of those players start, and they both have upside, but there's a reason why they're starting the Tigers, because they wouldn't be starting at too many other teams. And you're right about Cabrera, you guys. He is not what he once used to be. And when you're the number three hole, hitting 12 home runs, which means absolutely nothing nowadays, that's pretty sad. In such a year that with the ball was flying off people's bats, I thought Miggy would get at least 20, right? That's a great point, Q. And then you look at Nicholas Castellanos, and as soon as he gets out of Detroit, he turns his season a complete 180 around, starts hitting home runs. It's time to start asking, are the Tigers cursed? Is Detroit sports as a whole cursed? Well, 
Uh, they might not be cursed, but their GM might be blind because, I mean, just look at their starting pitching if you want to start you know, really cutting into them. They have Matthew Boyd, Norris, Spencer Turnbull, Jordan Zimmerman. I mean, come on. Are any of these names, like, anyone you'd be afraid to approach? I mean, those are all guys I'd be hyped to hit against if I was a hitter. That is a band of scrubs if I've ever seen one. Uh, win total projection for the Tigers is 56 and a half. Over or under, guys? Under. Under. Yep. There we go. I agree. Moving up a little bit, a step up the ladder. Another bottom-feeding team. But this one, I think there are a couple more bright spots to get excited about. Fellas, we're talking about the Kansas City Royals. What? Break it down for me, Q and Adam. Let's hear it. So the Royals are still post over their 2015 title run and think they can rebuild the team of speed and defense, which is not a bad way to go, except they don't really have a lot of power besides Jorge Soler. So Merrifield's great, and Montessi can be very good too, but with the lack of power hitters, their hitting is not that great. They're also holding on to very old players from their gun core with Alex Gordon and Salvador Perez, who are very much past their prime. And the new guys are asking of a lot. They're asking of Soler to essentially repeat his last season, which was a very, very quiet 48 home runs, as you mentioned in your notes, Q. And Dozier, they're hoping to hit 30 home runs. Monesty, they're hoping to have a healthy year. Merrifield, they're hoping to repeat. There seems to be a lot of question marks and a lot of reliance on the older guys like Perez and Gordon that I mentioned. So it's not the it's not as bad as the Tigers lineup, but it's still Pretty abysmal. I'll agree, or actually I'll disagree with you on one note, Adam, is I think Salvador Perez can come back and have a decent season. I know the knee injuring the knee injury, excuse me, is obviously concerning for a catcher. He is only twenty nine years old though, so I'd hope that you know, I'm I'm rooting for Salvador to come back and, and give a little bit of value for a team that the granted is going to be pretty bad. Yeah, no, I definitely root for Salvador. He's one of those guys that you always got to root for, just like Cabrera. But I'm going to circle Whit Merrifield. He was the AL hits and triples leader, and he basically plays everywhere. What position do you think he'll play this year, guys? I'd say second base primarily, but I'm sure he'll play in the outfield as well. He'll he'll be everywhere. He's a player to watch, and, you know, he's baseball's future, and he's he's definitely something exciting that they can build upon with Mondesi. They're not really that bad of a team. If they can make some moves, they could get themselves right out of it. Speaking of making moves, Whit Merrifield is a name that is tossed around a lot in trade rumors. I know they've been talking about Whit Merrifield to the Cubs for what seems like three years now. He is an aging player. I believe he's 31 or 32 would that be a player who makes sense for the Royals to flip? Adam, what do you say? Definitely. At some point, Merrifield's stock is going to not be as high as it already is. So soon, the sooner the better. And the, the Royals are not going to compete anytime soon. they got to focus on the full rebuild right here. And maybe they want to just get a couple more years out of him. But they got to trade Montessi and Merrifield at some point because – they probably won't be a part of the Royals' future when they do compete in a little while. I will say I love Adalberto Mondesi. Uh, that's coming mostly from a fantasy baseball lens where uh, if you play in a league where steals are valued, he, he can run like anybody else in baseball. He's a candidate oh, to yeah. steal 60, 70, he 80 plus if he's healthy. 
but that doesn't necessarily translate to, to great actual baseball. He needs to hit with a little more uh, better contact ability. He does have some pop in the bat, but he's young. I think he could be a building piece for the Royals, but I'm, I'm sure he would draw a lot of interest in trade conversations as well. Uh, the pitching for Kansas City, not very good. I think that's going to be a huge reason of them not being a very good team. Most definitely. Just a note, they have three prospects on MLB Pipeline's top 100 list. We got number 10, Bobby Witt Jr., who seems to be the crown jewel. Number 59, Brady Singer. And number 61, Daniel Lynch. Witt Jr. seems to be the prospect to watch. He's a couple years away, but there's some really good stuff being talked about this kid. I was looking at those prospects earlier today. Singer is the real deal. He's very close, and he can, even though he's only in double A, the Royals can definitely bring him up sometime in 2020. He can definitely make a quick impact on the Royals team. You might want to start him out as a reliever and just get some major league action, but if they season him a bit, he can be a starter uh, and a frontline starter very soon for the Royals. And I'm sure the Royals will have more prospects on the way with probably a couple of rough seasons still ahead in the rebuild process. But, hey, you get those high draft picks, and you can work and be competitive eventually, and they're not so far uh, removed from 2015 either. Now, the win total for Kansas City, 65 and a half. Over or under, fellas? Over, actually. I think Mike Matheny is a, a variable here. I think he's a pretty decent manager, and I think they might get 70 wins if they're lucky. I don't know if I can agree with that, Q. I'm sorry. 70 wins for the Royals. That that seems very far-fetched. It does great drive great conversation, and I love that. And I love that about you, too. Yeah. <laughs> you know me too well. But 70 you wins. Well. Come on, man. I know I'm the realist here. Maybe more so than Henry a bit, but Sonny wins, not likely. So, someone's got to be a devil's advocate around. I know. I do, on, I do like it, man. But <laughs> this team has no pitching as of now. They have something maybe coming up soon with Brady Singer and Daniel Lynch, but nothing as of now. Maybe their hitting isn't as bad as we expected, as you guys mentioned, but pitching is nowhere where it needs to be. Hitting's not even average. They're going to lose more than 60, what was it, 67 games that you had? Win total is 65 and a half. Still think it's going to be less than 65. I was ready to agree with Q and go the over because I like their offense. I think their hitters are a little underrated. But Adam talked me into just how bad their pitchers are. And, and for that reason, I will take the under as well. So we're moving up. This is where it gets a little more interesting. Now we have the tier of three contenders where you could make an argument to just any of the the White Sox, the Twins, or the Indians could end up on top, and it wouldn't be super surprising. The White Sox, of course, would probably be the most surprising of those three. So let's take a second to talk about Chicago. Huge offseason, a lot of pieces coming in, a lot of young pieces still uh, developing in Chicago, and Juan Moncada, Lucas Giolito, Eloy Jimenez, what do you guys think the 2020 season looks like for the Chicago White Sox? The White Sox offense is dangerous. It's lethal, and they are ready to get a lot of home runs and be very, very good in 2020. Top to bottom, they 
have not too many holes. And a lot of underrated players here. Guys like Tim Anderson, who won the American League batting title. Guys like Yohan Mankato, who took a big step up from last year. Guys like Luis Robert, who could easily become the best hitter and best offensive contributor on this team. Then solid guys, yeah. And then solid guys like Abreu, Grandal, and Carnacion. And don't forget about Jimenez, too. So hitting-wise, they're great. Pitching-wise, they have a great one-two of Giolito, who finally emerged as an ace last year. Might get some regression in 2020, but... He definitely has an ace-like potential. Keiko is a solid number two. They have Gio Gonzalez in the back end of the rotation. So it's not the worst pitching staff we've seen. Definitely some upside there. And it's going to be a very fun AL Central, to say the least, there, you guys. A little bit of upside with Dylan Cease at the end of that rotation, too. Just wanted to add that. And then, Q, you go ahead. Analyze them, White Sox. Well, just as a fan, if you were a White Sox fan, would you not be happy with your general manager? At least he's getting you something to watch, and I can't see another immediate turnaround. Like, everyone was going for the sexy pick in the Phillies last year, but I don't think the same thing will happen. I think the White Sox will translate to more wins. I think they could contend for this division, but again, with the Twins and the Indians have a little bit of a favorable advantage, it might come down to pitching because the Twins and the White Sox will definitely be able to rake. I think you make a great point that the White Sox kind of took a different approach in free agency. They kind of cast a wide net and took in a whole lot of pieces instead of making that one huge splash signing. And I know Manny Machado was a guy that was talked about a lot last season. Uh, You know, they were talking about Rendon to the White Sox. I feel like there were some whispers there. So you're not getting that $300 million guy. You're you're getting Yasmani Grindals and you're getting Dallas Keuchel's and spreading that money out a little bit. Nomar Mazzara as well. And they've got a really solid lineup and they've got good pitching. There's no reason why the White Sox can't contend. I'm not saying they're the favorites, but I'm not saying that we should be surprised if they do win a lot of ball games this year. Is this the deepest division in baseball? It can't be just because of the Tigers and the Royals. It, it's one of the better big three, or top threes, I should say. Is it the best top three, one to three, with the three not being as much of a slouch and the separation being not that big? I don't know. The NL East and the NL Central are also really, really good. It's tough to say, but there's a lot more fun divisions. It's not just the AL East where only the Yankees and Rays will be competitive at this point. I don't know. There's a lot of good divisions this year. Even the NL West which is probably the most polarized division. At least the Diamondbacks will be more competitive. That's probably the weakest one. But at least in that one, there's a couple of competitive teams. So I think it's a lot really fun all across each division in Major League Baseball heading to 2020. And you're, you're the Yankees guy, but I think we could say AL East too. Yankees have an argument to be the best team in baseball, uh, as you may have heard us talk about in our AL East preview episode. And you got the Rays and the Red Sox still could could win some games as well, too. But, you know, you make a good point, Q. This is a strong division despite uh, the Royals and the Tigers at the bottom. It's an intriguing top three. And while it may not be the best division in baseball, I think it is one of the most fun races that we should be looking ahead to. Um, after we talk about the White Sox, what do you guys, you can maybe make an argument it's a coin flip. Do we want to talk Indians first or Twins? Everyone wants to talk about the Twins. Let's talk about the Twins. <laughs> Let's do it. Dive right in. So, the Twins, 
set the MLB record with 307 homers last year by none other than Jason Castro, who's starting to have a bit of a resurgence. And then they add the bringer of rain. They have Buxton completely healthy. They have Sano healthy again. This is going to be a very, very dangerous lineup. And top to bottom, they do not really have any holes offensively. And then they go out and add some pitching, which is what they needed. They added Homer Bailey, who was very underrated with the A's. They added Rich Hill. Ooh, no, no, no. Homer Bailey is awful. I won't have it. I won't have it, Adam. Well, well, we can say that Maeda, the late pickup of Maeda, the under-the-radar deal, definitely was a nice fit to add some depth to their rotation because that is definitely their obvious Achilles heel. And teams will take advantage of them, and they will be Twinkies at some points. But they need to build upon the side and rotation because they have so much pop. I do it's agree. Scared. I think they made the right move going out and getting there some pitching. I'm sorry, Adam, to, to come at you like that about Homer Bailey. I just – I've been watching him for years as a Cubs fan. I've seen him in the Reds, and I know I know just how bad that man is. I was like, damn, what did he do to you? <laughs> no. He matched my life right there. <laughs> Um, but no, no, I do like the Maeda signing, and I do think the Twins. Look at that lineup from top to bottom. I mean, you're talking about Brian Buxton in the nine hole, a guy who has as much potential as anybody. I know he struggled to tap into it, but that is that's a real you know a candidate for a 2020 season. He's he's got power, he's got speed, real underrated outfielder, and Eddie Rosario. And as Max Kepler as well, I'd say they don't get enough love. Nelson Cruz can still hit despite being 39, maybe 40 years old. He's up there. And Q, you were leaning more Indians? Yeah, I'm going to have to go Indians or the sexy pick with the White Sox because I feel like until the Twins can really address the starting pitching, it's still not really that good with – I mean, my eight is obviously an upgrade, but – Oh, they ranked near the bottom in starting pitching numbers last year, and I think that's an X factor. They're just going to have to hit more home runs than everybody. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be what they're going for. <laughs> I think you're taking too big of a hit at the Twins pitching. Now, he, here's me being the devil's advocate for once here, Q. So, I was actually looking into that because I didn't think the Twins pitching was too hot. But then you look at guys like Barrios and Odorizzi as the 1-2. Not the typical 1-2 you want, but... I was very surprised that they're both over four win pitchers last season. And they have a lot of a good, a very good chance to be even better. Barrios is only 25 years old. He gets better season after season. Past the 200 inning threshold, strikes out a good amount of guys, good innings eater, good top of the rotation starter. Oda Rizzi had a very poor half. And if he can return to what he was in the first half, man, that's a really good one, too. And then you have kind of subsidiary pieces that go along the way. The Twins bullpen is great with Tyler Rogers, Tyler sorry Taylor Rogers, Tyler Duffy, Sergio Romo, Tyler Clippard. That's a pretty solid bullpen, and that can more than cover. Kenta Maeda's five to six inning outings. You got Randy Dobnik, who had a great MLB showcase. Maybe not against the Yankees in Game Two of the ALDS, but he had a great showcase. So their pitching staff and their pitching rotation, just their pitching as a whole. Is slightly underrated, and I might even go as far to say um, that it, it's better. It's better, but say if Lindor and Ramirez return back to form and Clevenger gets healthy, do the Indians pack more of a punch then? Definitely, but 
the, the, the Twins cannot compare to pitching with the Indians, but they can maybe make the case to be just as good, if not better, than the White Sox, I would say. Absolutely. I think, I think it's yeah. Twins, Indians are the top two. And the White Sox kind of on the outside looking in of that tier, but certainly with the potential to surprise some people. I tend to lean Twins a little bit over Indians. And we, we need to dive in deeper, take a look at Cleveland as a whole. You, you started off, Q, talking about Francisco Lindor and Jose Ramirez. Obviously, the two X factors there in their, in their uh, offense, I should say. There's the trade rumors about Lindor all offseason. He's still there. Looks like he's going to be there as we get closer to the start of the season. Maybe that's a piece that could be moved if the Indians just lay an egg to start the season. But Jose Ramirez, definitely an intriguing player to watch. Is is he the X factor for this Indians lineup? Most definitely, because when he's healthy, he can make the Indians the most well-rounded club in the division because they have bullpen, not the best, they have great starting pitching. If Lindor and Ramirez, they added Cesar Hernandez, they added Delino DeShields. Not, you know, not great talent, but definitely it'll help the lineup a little bit. But I think they're starting pitching. And Domingo Santana. Oh, yeah, and Dom- Domingo Santana just the other day okay, as well. Okay, so there you go. So, I mean, it adds a little more back-end depth to your rota- uh, your lineup. But rotation pound for pound, if healthy, and they have a little pop uh, pumping their lineup, they might be the team. I don't know. Everyone's feeling the Twins. Some people are feeling the White Sox. But the Indians, if they can return the status quo and be healthy, they'll be right there. You you certainly can't. Yeah, you certainly can't count the Indians out. They have a lot of upside in this lineup, more so than they've had arguably in recent years. They have Jose Ramirez, who's bound to be more like his second half 2019 form. Everyone is giving him great projections to be a 2020 player, maybe even a 30-30 player again in 2020. They have Oscar Mercado, who brings that nice homer and steel combo along with good defense. They have some power bats in there, like Santana, who's very underrated. You have Framil Reyes in there. Everberto Perez, who came out of nowhere with his offense and also rated as one of the best defensive catchers in all of baseball. So their speed, power, and defense is legitimate. They have Shane Bieber in a now healthy Carlos Carrasco, the top of the rotation. Clevenger should come back strong. This can be a fun team, and it will be a very fun race. It's just a question of health. And you touched on it there. Sure. You touched on it there with health, with Mike Clevenger. He's out in the next six to eight weeks with a torn meniscus in his left knee. Now that does put him for, what, say four Four to six weeks once we get back to – no, I'm sorry. My math's off there. But, what, four-ish weeks of regular season baseball? So hopefully not too serious there and he's able to get back quickly. Yeah, but it's just – I think the health for their end is more on their bats because the starting pitching is good enough to keep you afloat, but their bats can't be abysmal. Like at some points when they were hurt last year, they struggled to put up runs. So I feel like that's the biggest independent variable. Going I would forward. like to add that their middle of the rotation is definitely a bit suspect. Maybe they're middle to the end of rotation. After Bieber, Carrasco, and Clevenger, they're relying a lot of guy on a lot of uh, two pitchers, namely Aaron Savali and Zach Plesak. Those guys need to step up. This Indians rotation is going to be really legit because those guys are not the two best options bottom of the rotation. And they need to provide some innings 
and some quality innings too if the Indians are going to be really legit and win this division. And part of the reason they have to rely on those two guys uh, is Corey Kluber being traded in the offseason for what many felt were table scraps and what could indicate that the Indians are headed towards a rebuild. Now, I mean, this is a team that we're talking about as a potential division winner, yet they've made some moves that indicate they may be looking to blow it up, and especially the Francisco Lindor chatter. What's up with that, guys? Are, are the Indians buyers or sellers, contenders, pretenders? It's tough. They send a lot of smokescreen, but I wouldn't buy too much into Kluber leaving. He's an aging pitcher. They didn't get much, yes, but the fact that they didn't lend deal Lindor as well, maybe they didn't feel like good enough deals so they couldn't get swiped twice, but I feel like it's a decent enough sign where they can keep Lindor, focus on Ramirez, they have a good rotation, but I, if things go south, they definitely will deal Lindor by the All-Star break. The Indians aren't truly contenders, not truly sellers. They were tourers. They try to get rid of a lot of money because they're a small market team, which is weird because all of these franchises are worth so much. The Mets just tried to sell their team for $1 billion, and they are not a small market team. So none of these guys, none of these teams are very small market. The Indians, if they really wanted to, could take on this money. They're really trying to directly win a championship, but they are trying to be conservative with that. And... They still have some time to be good. They still have Ramirez and Lindor under contract for a bit. They have young guys like Bieber and Clevenger. So it's not over yet for them, but they need to see some results fast. And although they do like to be sellers, it might take a good trade for the Indians towards the trade deadline to really put them over the edge. I want to do go on the record and saying that I have this just gut feeling that either Francisco Lindor is going to end up on the Red Sox or Mookie Betts is going to end up on the Indians. Maybe both. That's just my very early free agent projections uh, I wanted to make while while it was fresh on my mind. I do think the Indians are going to be a strong team moving forward uh, for 2020, and it'll be interesting to see what they want their future to be if they if they continue that retooling or if they stick more with what they have now with their core and add supplemental pieces. Adam, like you said, maybe another middle-of-the-rotation guy, an upgrade. Yeah, the Indians have a pretty decent core with, well, not really so much with Glendor because he's only there for a couple more years, and he's probably not going to stay at this rate. But they still have Ramirez under contract for a while. They have young guys like Mercado and Bieber, and their new reliever, People sleep on him a lot, but Emmanuel Class has throws 100 miles per hour and has some movement too. That's the piece he got from the Rangers in the Corey Kluber trade. So they will be very, very good. They still have a very strong core, and they might not be as bad as people expect when, when Dora leaves, but it will definitely be a hard blow. Uh, a team, if healthy, can do some things. If a couple things go wrong, it's a team that could go down with the ship very fast. I'll leave it at that. All right, fellas. Now, we've touched on every team in the Central. Before we get out of here and call it a night, I want to get your predictions for who is, if we could have a most valuable player just in this division, who is your AL Central MVP? It has to be Lindor. Doesn't seem like there's anyone better. Ah, uh, you go Lindor. I'm going to go crazy with Merrifield. Okay. <laughs> I think it's an outside-the-box argument, but certainly – 
you know, there's an argument to be made. I am inclined to agree and go with Lindor, but if it's kind of like the the whole league MVP thing where the winning team has to have it, then I'm inclined to either go Nelson Cruz, probably Lean Cruz, maybe Josh Donaldson if it has to be a twin. He brings rain, so you got to watch out. <sighs> and, I, and that's not And then there's Eddie Rosario and Max <laughs> Kepler too. I could see any of those four being the the most valuable hitter on the Twins. Any other dark horse MVP candidates you guys want to throw? We got a, I, I put a lot of names in the hat right there. but I would maybe go with Mitch Garver. He might be the best catcher in baseball, which I know some fighting r- words. is A lot of people like Real Muto and Contreras and Sanchez, but Garver's pretty solid behind the plate. He is, I think, maybe the highest home run per fly ball percentage catcher. So he can be a real force to be reckoned with, and he could be a dark horse MVP Candy in the central. I got a Homer Bailey. Let's see it. Prove <laughs> me wrong, Homer. Go out there and, and see. Let's see it. That That's a nice segue to if you had to pick, who's the Cy Young for the division? Cle- Clevenger comes back strong after the injury. All right. I think that's a good pick. Adam? Might have to go conservative here again, but Shane Bieber really impressed last year. I don't think he's going to fall off too far from his Cy Young form. So I would still say he has the best shot at being the ace of this division. Yeah, I agree with Adam on that one. Shane Bieber is my pick. Uh, but just for the sake of saying something mean about the White Sox, I'm glad none of us said Lucas Giolito because, I don't know, he's good, but he fell <laughs> apart a little bit at the end of the second half. Suspect. I don't think he's quite there yet. Yeah. The White Sox are still going to be good. One more preseason award pick, and then I think we'll call it a night. Who's your rookie of the year for the division? Maybe Casey Mize because he can definitely enter the Tigers rotation and be a big piece. And the Tigers rotation certainly is help. And they can look no further than their own homegrown talent. So also it could be Luis Robert too. He was a 30-30 player in three minor league levels last season. He can certainly impress and there's a lot of hype around him too. So either one of those guys could definitely be rookie of the year favorites. Yeah, I got to go with Luis Robert, too. He looks like he's going to be the real deal for the White Sox. And I think there is a whole lot of power in that bat from what we've seen uh, in the minor leagues. And, you know, see some. I've seen a little bit of video of him going around this offseason. Let's just say that ball makes an awfully nice sound off of that young man's bat. He, he will be a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, I'm digging through trying to be devil's advocate, but the number three overall prospect in baseball, he could be a 30-30 or even a 40-40 guy. Ugh, it's tough to go against him. Get his rookie card, guys. <laughs> Absolutely. And with that, we have covered the AL Central and a little bit of Astros, too. Uh, stay tuned for more of our division previews as we head out west. Thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, Adam, Q, it's been a pleasure as always.